And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today my guest is Greg Newby. He runs Project Gutenberg. For those of you who might not be familiar with Project Gutenberg, that's basically where you can get free digital books. A lot of them are copyright free books or books that never had a copyright to begin with. Old books, pre-1920s, all the Jane Austen books, some of the Fitzgerald books. Uh, they're all available on Project Gutenberg, and we're going to have a conversation about the importance of having literature freely available without having to purchase from a publisher. This is very much a discussion uh, about the arts, creativity, free society, free speech, all of that goes in to what we're talking about. And so it's very much uh, an episode that is important for this podcast and it's something that I've had in mind for this podcast for a long time. Uh, and I'm happy to finally present it to you. So here is my conversation with Greg about Project Gutenberg and how they work. Enjoy. Thanks for coming on the show. I, uh, I've been trying to uh, find a, a way towards an episode like this for a while now, um, and it seemed like a great time to talk about free press, uh, free literature, uh, uh, with my favorite book having gone into the public domain last year. Um, you can probably guess what it mm-hmm. is. <laughs> uh, it's very exciting. and Ooh, so Yeah, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Every year, every year is a good year for public domain. It turns out that's uh, that's one thing that's uh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking, I want to get your thoughts on a lot of things, especially like copyright law and all that. But um, mm-hmm. I think we should start with Project Gutenberg and like the backstory of it, because I didn't realize that eBooks were invented in 1971. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I should ask uh, for performance reasons. Are we? Um, do we need the video? Because I might. It might be. Uh, we might do a little better with just audio in terms of my bandwidth. It turns out bandwidth in okay. northern Canada is yeah. not always um, wonderful. We don't need video if you don't want to do it, and uh, it makes yeah. sense to me. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I'm not bashful or anything. I don't mind video recording, but uh, but but if you're not going to use it for the podcast, uh, then uh, then we'll I'll just turn it off because that way you'll get better audio quality probably. Sounds good. 
Okay, so we'll do that. Okay, and it probably doesn't matter if you leave yours on. The uh, up uplink tends to be slower than the downlink, is what we've just covered here. So, yeah, it's it's um, kind of how the infrastructure was built. Yep. So um, yeah, so 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 the history of Project Gutenberg is the history of eBooks. The founder of Project Gutenberg was the inventor of electronic books back in 1971. This is Michael Hart, who died in 2011, unfortunately, at uh, the age of 64. Michael was a student at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He had a brother and some friends that were involved with the computing of the day, you know, the big mainframe computers back in the early 70s on the internet uh, of the day. And um, he was given some time on the computer to do with as he pleased. And he wasn't too much of a programmer, wasn't too much of a uh, uh, you know computer systems person, and gave some thought to what he could do with this gift, this gift of computer time. And it was networked computer time. As I said, it was on the network of the day, something called ARPANET. And he had a flash of inspiration. It was the 4th of July. He was uh, out wandering around town, went into sort of a quickie mart type of place. And as uh, part of his purchase on the 4th of July, he got a uh, facsimile of the United States Declaration of Independence in his little bag when he left the store. And in a flash of inspiration, he was thinking, what could I do with this computer time? I have Declaration of Independence in my hands. Let's type that up. Let's make it into something that people can read and share. And so he did. He spent the rest of the evening, probably actually into the early hours of July 5th, typing this up on the uh, teletype uh, printer uh, 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 terminal of the day and uh, shared it with everybody he could find on ARPANET. So he might have also invented spam at the same time, but he doesn't get uh, doesn't usually get credit for that. So um, so he invented the ebook. He said, this is this is the future of computing. The future of computing is all the stuff that we know about, you know, the networking and the data processing and numerics and, and so forth. And it's going to be how people experience literature, how people read books. And so he spent really the rest of his life uh, getting that message out, helping to create and distribute the ebooks, turning it into a volunteer-driven project, which is Project Gutenberg, and just sort of overall being a uh, an evangelist for electronic books. Now that's the early history, as you can imagine. Um, here we are more than 50 years later, there's a lot that intervened, but I can tell you that in those early years, and I got involved first in 1991 with Project Gutenberg, so about 30 years ago, but I can tell you that those early years, well into the 90s, it was um, a struggle to convince people that computer-based reading was the future. These days, it's not a struggle, and we have a variety of special purpose computers, tablets and e-readers and even phones that are really quite well suited for reading books. But historically, it was really a struggle because it was not that hard to digitize the books. You know, it's challenging, but, but you know, you, you work on it and you can get a book digitized. It's just words, you type them up, you know, you make them available. Um, but it was quite challenging to get people to pay attention and say, this is how I want to experience uh, literature. These days, not so much of a challenge. So Michael really was uh, struggling from the tech technical standpoint, of course, and volunteer management and recruitment and organizational structure, all that sort of thing, but also struggling just to be heard and to be uh, validated as someone that saw eBooks as the future. These days, we know that he was right. And it's uh, from my point of view, it was really impossible to imagine what what an incredible leap of intuition that was 50 years ago to say that uh, 
computer-based books are the future because that was, uh, you know, uh, decades before things like the Kindle was, uh, was available. Oh yeah. He's just at least 40 years ahead of its time, probably more. Um, who was the primary audience for these eBooks before 91? Well, the, the accessibility of, it was always network-based and the accessibility to the network of the day, which was not so much DARPAnet, it was something called NSFnet uh, in, in the uh, 80s and, and 90s. This was pretty well academic. It was mostly people that were at universities and also a lot of uh, companies that had research arms. So companies like IBM, um, you know, have a, a research arm, you know, research group and they would be on the network. So the availability to to get access to the uh, content over the network was kind of limited just because the access to the, to the network was kind of limited. But that wasn't uh, intended as a limitation on the audience because the thing is that once a lot of people still had computers, even if they weren't really on the big global networks, maybe they were on something like CompuServe or you know, a bulletin board system. And the thing about the Project Gutenberg eBooks is they're just files, right? So if you get a copy of an eBook from the University of Illinois because you're on the University of Illinois network. That was sort of the long-term home of Gutenberg. Uh, you can take that, you can put it on a floppy disk, you can send it by email, uh, you know, distribute it in a variety of other ways. And so these would end up on bulletin board servers and um, some of them ended up in uh, within games, things like that. So the ways that people were using computers uh, back then were also ways of getting eBooks around. And I can tell you that my Gutenberg journey or my ebook journey actually started in about 1986 or 87. I was a uh, student at the University of Albany, and uh, my friend emailed me a copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And I didn't know anything about Project Gutenberg. It didn't even mention Project Gutenberg in the file. But here it was, a book in my email inbox. And I was like, wow, I get it. I, I got it right away. It's like, wow, this is how we're going to be reading reading. Uh, not so much uh, that we wouldn't have print books or that you'd be taking your big old, you know, uh, workstation in the bathtub or something like that or on a plane. I mean, I mean, you know, there's some limitations, practical limitations, but I immediately saw the appeal of instant access to the world's literature. And that, of course, is uh, how I learned about ebooks. And later on, when I arrived at the University of Illinois as a young faculty member, um, in 1991, I discovered that Michael Hart was in the same town I lived in, in, in Illinois, and was uh, you know, out there and working on Project Gutenberg, and I got in touch, and the rest is kind of our, our own history of how I got involved. So that's uh, kind of what happened. But, but you know, in terms of your, your specific question, the, um, the Project Gutenberg and eBooks have always followed the available technology of the day. And that's evolved from things like FTP and bulletin board systems to today, obviously you have the World Wide Web, but you also have all these different ecosystems of getting eBooks onto tablets and, and um, you know computers and phones and stuff like that. And for the most part, uh, it all works just fine with the Project Gutenberg books. And that's because we made a real conscientious effort to have open standards and unlimited redistribution as, as a primary design component for the eBooks that we make. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to ask you about the the rules concerning the volunteers that actually inter that they either scan the books or they type them up. Um, it, it, does it make a difference if 
let's say you know the great gatsby went into public domain like a year ago Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference if you're typing up the manuscript that was first published versus uh, one that would, might have been published in the 1960s? Because I know mm-hmm. that over the years they change them or may, they might correct them. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the answer is that it does matter. And sometimes it doesn't keep us from using a later publication. And sometimes it does. And the reason is copyright. And copyright is not given because you reprinted something. It's not given because you, you know, typeset something. Uh, sweat of the brow, for example. You know, if you if you um, you know invent a new font and 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 uh, and print it on nice paper, right? That doesn't give you a new copyright. Copyright is due to the act of authorship. So when the Great Gatsby was first written, that clearly was an act of authorship, and it got a copyright, and that copyright was good at the time for uh, 28 years and could be renewed for up to 56 years. Since then, it was extended. 95 years. Okay, fine. It's pretty straightforward. In a later edition, and, and it entered the public domain, right, in, in 2021, because that was 95 years after publication. And so Project Gutenberg picked it up. But in the intervening years, what if someone wrote some new words? What if someone uh, added a few chapters or, or uh, added a few paragraphs, added some illustrations, added a um, uh, uh, a new introduction or preface added an index. These would all get their own copyright because their own separate acts of they are their own separate acts of authorship. So when we are looking to digitize a book, if we look at the front of the book and it says you know printed in nineteen or, or published in nineteen twenty five, copyright nineteen twenty five, reprinted in nineteen twenty six and nineteen thirty one and nineteen forty five, if it's a reprint that doesn't get a new copyright. That's just an act of uh, a sweat of the brow act, an act of labor. If there's something that is new authorship, then that would get a new copyright. And that does happen. Um, you know, it's uh, really typical. People don't realize this, but it's actually really typical in the history of, uh, of publishing for an author to write and then write a new version and write an updated version. And then maybe it was published in serials, you know, magazines, and then they come up with a novel and they, they make some changes. And that's happened with book after book. You know, that's a lot of uh, Charles Dickens history, for example. That's a lot of the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, you know, so, so it does matter, you know, that later authorship does get a new copyright. But in the case of a later reprinting, that's not an act of authorship and doesn't. So, what do we do? Well, we just we look in the front and we see if it's a reprint or something else. And if we need to, we can compare. And so if we if we say, OK, it looks like this was just a little bit of a fix up with a few changed sentences. Um, maybe we can just go back and undo those changed sentences and use the original as it was uh, as it was written, even though we're working from a later uh, a later printing. So we sort of we sort of apply some practical uh, uh, you know, guidelines to to whether you can use a later print edition or not. By and large, so you can. You know, if, especially with a lot of these classics. If you have, um, uh, you know, a, a classic novel from from hundreds of years ago, you can go down to the bookstore or go to a used bookseller or even get an online ebook if, if you wanted to. And it's probably going to be the exact same words with no new copyright, no new authorship. Yeah, I, it crossed my mind when I was making the bullet points for this conversation because I know that there was one word that Fitzgerald invented, 
And his editor initially corrected it to, to a word that already existed. And then I know that like later on, they replaced it with the word he had invented. But I didn't bother to look whether what, what version of it is in. Mm, I'm not sure either. Database. Yeah, but I, but I can tell you that that would be it would be a tough case for anyone to make that that was an act of authorship, right? An editorial act is usually not considered to be authorship. A typesetting act, uh, formatting, layout, even in the editorial sense, even like relocating some some paragraphs here and there, that's usually not going to be good enough to get a, a, a copyright. And there's also formalities associated with copyright. So assuming it was published in the US, which of course Greg Caspi was, um, you have to have a copyright notice. And then if you want to extend your copyright beyond the first 28 years, uh, you have to uh, file a renewal uh, with the Library of uh, Congress uh, Registrar of Copyrights. So these formalities, uh, in addition to the lack of clear authorship, probably mean that it doesn't matter from a copyright standpoint. In other words, it's, it's whichever, whichever version was used for digitization probably was still in the public domain, even if it was uh, done later. I always felt like the Sonny Bono Copyright Act kind of did a lot of damage to the create what what's possible creatively um do you have thoughts on like just how long it now takes for creative works to go into the public domain um because i'm thinking i'm thinking about all the works that are a result of something else uh like king lear for example the fact is that copyright was invented and was articulated in Article 11 of the U.S. Constitution in order to foster the creative arts. The idea is very simple and, and not a bad idea at all. The idea is that when someone creates something, an act of authorship, they should have a limited term monopoly on the ability to monetize that and, and to benefit from it, to sell it or, or, or even just to control it if they don't want to sell it. That's not a bad idea, right? That's, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, that someone could steal your work and sell it out from under you would be, uh, uh, you know, inhibiting. It would not be encouraging of, of these creative works. And copyright actually goes all the way back to the Statute of Anne uh, in England. There's a whole history of copyright. And, and it, as you might imagine, there's a, it's a little bit of a dirty story as well, because just like today, a lot of the time, the benefits didn't go so much to the authors, they went to the publishers. And that's a uh, contemporary story with uh, streaming music, by the way, where you have services like Spotify that make a lot of money and the artists make very little money. That's the history of publishing as well. You have you know, the publishers making a lot of money, the, the um, authors not making uh, enough to really make a living. Anyway, put that aside for a moment. The idea of copyright is, is for a limited time monopoly to encourage and foster the, uh, the creative arts. Not a bad idea. The, current duration of copyright terms in the U.S. and really all of the world, even those that have shorter terms, is excessive. It's just longer than it needs to be to achieve that goal. And it's easy to see how it's longer than it needs to be to achieve that goal, because most of the people that publish stuff 95 years later, which is a U.S. duration, they're dead, right? They're not creating anything because they're gone. And so there's nothing that you could argue that's uh, and that's supporting that author's creativity when they died, you know, probably uh, well before 
95 years. So who's benefiting? Well, the publishers are benefiting because they have it locked away if they own rights to it. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and if for the big famous works, also the heirs or uh, you know, children, these types of folks are, are also benefiting because um, uh, you know, they inherited the, the, the copyrights, whatever uh, revenues are generating. So, so in terms of the original purpose of copyright, the excessively long terms don't achieve that purpose at all. Like there's no reasonable argument that you can make that 95 years is, uh, is encouraging that author to keep writing you know, 95 years later. It's just not, not, not a reasonable argument. Um, you might be able to make a reasonable argument for 50 years, you know, uh, 40 years, something like that. A lot of the countries, though, they base duration. And actually, this will be in the U.S. In the U.S., we work, I'm sorry, in Gutenberg, we work, work mostly with older works. But uh, the modern method is life plus X, right? So publication plus 95 is what Project Gutenberg uses. Life plus some number of years is more often found around the world. So right away, we're saying, okay, it's, it's, it's when you die plus however long after that. And again, obviously, if you're dead as an author, you're not going to be engaged in creative works anymore, right? It's, it's not not possible. So, so the, uh, the duration is just excessive. It doesn't achieve its goal. And the, the other thing that's, I think, really important is that the number of works that are even generating revenues for the publisher or whoever owns the rights after a fir the first few years is astonishingly small. So we can look to the Great Gatsby. We can look to, you know, Winnie the Pooh. You know, the, you can look to um, a number of famous books. You know, Pride and Prejudice, whether or not they're in the public domain now, and say, okay, um, these are still in print. There's still people buying them. Maybe there's even movies and other sort of associated stuff. So, so there's something to be said for uh, uh, for enduring restrictions on who can do what with that. Um, at least from the point of view of the publisher or the, the heirs or whatever. Um, but the fact is that the vast majority of items that are published are out of print within a few years and no longer available. And even if they're available, they're available in libraries and used bookstores. They're not making revenues for anybody. So, that, so we're protecting an astonishingly small proportion of works with these long copyright durations. And with the very long copyright durations, we're not doing anything to encourage um, uh, new creation. All we're really doing is uh, isolating and limiting what can be done with that, uh, with that work. Um, I would agree with every word you just said. Um, what, can you talk about your volunteers? Uh, what, mm -hmm. Who are they and, and how do they get yeah. involved with Project Gutenberg? I'm interested in volunteerism as a, in a general policy of mine. So. The majority of Project Gutenberg volunteers are actually working with distributed proofreaders, which is a separate organization. I'm also uh, part of that organization. And it has a separate uh, board of directors, has uh, some, some different policies and so forth. So distributed proofreaders is pgdp.net, Project Gutenberg Distributed Proofreaders. And this is basically crowdsourcing of the digitization process. So we used to spend a lot of time scanning old books. Nowadays, we usually get the scans from Internet Archive or Google Books or, or one of those other sources that have done a lot of large-scale scanning. Um, so we usually don't need to scan it, but to go from a scan or a picture of an ebook 
to a fully featured ebook is actually pretty labor intensive. You have to uh, do all the optical character recognition or type the thing in. Then you have to do a lot of correction of the errors that OCR makes, you know, a lot of um, uh, computer errors, um, do the formatting, do the uh, eventually do the markup in HTML or sometimes something else, but usually it's HTML. So distributed proofreaders is this great uh, service where it divides that process, which used to just be one person sitting at a computer, it divides that process into individual parts. So you can do a page at a time get that page proofread and then go on to the next page. And if you don't want to do the next page, if you only have time to do a page, someone else will do the next page. And eventually um, that, that book will be proofread and then someone else will in the chain in the processing chain will bring it all together into one file and look for, uh, look for problems, run a bunch of automated checks. So it's really a tremendous system. And the thing that's nice about it is it's, a, it's essentially a skill-based meritocracy. So anybody can proofread a page. But if you do a poor job of proofreading a page, then the system will spot that because someone else proofread the same page. Every page generally gets proofread by two different people. So if they all find the same, if, if both find the same problems and errors and fix them, great, everyone's doing a good job. If one person finds a bunch of problems and the other person doesn't, then you say, okay, this other person maybe is not such a great proofreader. Maybe they need this one more time, you know, doing things more carefully. So it's a neat, a neat system where, uh, uh, the individual can over time get better. And then if, if they like what they're doing, maybe they'll uh, promote their skills to working on one of the later phases where you're assembling the book or you're doing the markup or you're doing um, uh, what we call smooth reading, which is where you just read it carefully and look for uh, any remaining errors that, uh, that were found. So it has essentially a, a, a set of rounds of the proofreading process. And this is great, you know, it's very low skill low, uh, barrier to entry, but there's increasingly skill, there are increasing skill levels, a little like a game really, you know, increasing skill levels where you unlock additional abilities. Um, distributed proofreaders also has a, uh, a set of forums, you know, uh, basically a bulletin board type of system. So there's a lot of support, you know, if you have questions, also if you have suggestions, if there's a book that you're interested in, or maybe, Maybe you're from another country and you want to start working on literature from a language other than English. These types of things are all welcome. So really uh, kudos and appreciation to distributed proofreaders. That is the main place for Project Gutenberg volunteers. We do have a, a number of other roles, but there's there are not that many people that are doing it. So we have like a whole production crew and a little bit of programming and some website maintenance and stuff like that. These are uh, probably a dozen or so people, maybe a little more than that, that are working on that sort of back office stuff, including me, you know, I'm doing the, the uh, a lot of the, the activity as well. Um, the distributed proofreader, so is actually thousands of people that are engaged in the in the proofreading and formatting and production and, and, and so forth. So that's the main, the main place. That's sort of a description. I can go into more detail on some of those other roles, but I think in terms of volunteer attraction, volunteer recruitment, DP, distributed proofreading, is the place to go. And it probably goes without saying, but I'll mention at any point in time, they have a bunch of different stuff. So if you're interested in history, you're interested in, I don't know, Hungarian literature, you're interested in, in uh, light um, uh, fiction from the early uh, 20th century, you're interested in mysteries, I mean, you're going to find something of interest there because there's always at least 100 or so books that are being proofread at the same time. I didn't realize that they were in the thousands a lot it's a big community yeah, yeah. And, and you know we we like to say uh, accurately but without without a, a really uh 
strong data set, but I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of people have created Project Gutenberg eBooks over the years. And um, historically, way back when, they were individual producers. So I did number 52. That was my first book, uh, René Descartes' Discourse on Method. That was my first uh, eBook that I made. And I sat at the computer and I typed the thing in. Um, I had some OCR, you know, but I did all the proofreading myself. That's the way things happened a lot until we got into the thousands and then distributed proofreaders came along in, um, uh, well, it's a, it's a little over 20 years ago now. So distributed proofreaders came along and suddenly rather than solo producers, we would have these group projects. And, uh, and that just turned out to be, uh, to be really effective, really effective in terms of uh, uh, a lightweight way to become a volunteer, which is important, right? Uh, it's kind of heavyweight to say, okay, now first get a scanner, then get a computer, and then find a book and scan the thing and then start typing it, right? So obviously some people did that and you know I did that and, and, and a number of people did that, but it's a pretty high barrier to entry. Using your web browser to go to pdp.net and, um, and proofread a page is actually a very low barrier to entry. So that was instrumental in, uh, in getting more volunteers, uh, more volunteers involved with the ebook production process. Do people license I mean, I know they're copyright free works, but do they go through to through you to obtain texts if they want to reprint them? Because I know there are a lot of like old texts that are being reprinted on demand through Amazon, and mm -hmm. it always crossed my mind. I wonder if this has anything to do with Gutenberg or if they're getting their texts from Gutenberg. Uh, to me, it would mm -hmm. make a certain amount of sense that you would be a resource for those publishers. Yeah, uh, unlimited free redistribution is what we're about. So when we digitize and put on our website a book, you know, name name any book, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Great Gatsby, Winnie the Pooh, uh, uh, The Prophet, uh, The Bible, right? These are um, in the public domain in the United States and, and uh, usually worldwide, but you have to check. There's different copyright rules elsewhere, but uh, usually due to their age, right? So if someone wants to take that book and package it up, print it, redistribute it, however they want to do it, they can do that. That is permitted, it's allowed, it's even encouraged. The only thing they cannot do is they can't use the Project Gutenberg name to sell that without uh, uh, following our trademark licensing policy. And this is a pretty simple thing. It basically says if you're calling it the Project Gutenberg book of whatever, or you're including within the book that you're distributing, the name Project Gutenberg, which we have at the basically the header and the footer, the front and the end of the book, then you have to pay royalties because our name is a trademark and we don't want people going and abusing our name. You know, we don't want people selling something and it's maybe they did a poor job of, uh, uh, of doing it, you know, of uh, maybe they're printing on demand and they do a bad job of binding it. We don't want to be getting the phone calls about this substandard product, right? So, um, so we have a trademark license, which basically says you have to pay royalties if you're using the name. But the, but we don't. The fact, go back to what I talked about before. We didn't get a new copyright because we digitized *The Great Gatsby*, right? It's still public domain, despite the fact that we did all this labor or distributed proofreaders did all this labor to get it, uh, get it typed up. It's the book itself is in the public domain. We don't own it any more than anyone else does. And if someone wants to take it and resell it on Amazon, well, that doesn't add copyright still, 
right? So someone else can take what they did and resell it or redistribute it, right? That's the nature of the public domain. No one owns, no one owns the, uh, uh, the item, the book. So uh, yeah, so the tra trademark license is really the only restriction. We have a whole webpage that talks about uh, uh, the situations in which you might need permission and, and how to, you know, for example, how to give up bibliographic citation and, you know, can you use it if you're doing something free, like in a school, you know, so, you know, it's very, very open and, and free, but ultimately um, the book itself, if it's in the public domain, no sweat of the brow that you can apply Get the new copyright. That's not the way copyright works. Uh, sweat of the brow, you know, like I'm saying, uh, uh, further uh, uh, formatting, new fonts, uh, layout, uh, uh, new new covers, uh, binding, shipping. You know, none of these things get a copyright. These are all sweat of the brow. Putting it into the store. These are all sweat of the brow, right? Um, only authorship gets you uh, new copyright. So we do have people, for example. That say, okay, I found this great book, and I'm an artist, and I want to do illustrations. Great, you know, you can take the book, you can you can do illustrations, and the illustrations then get a new copyright, but the book itself does not. It didn't even occur to me that you would have the Bible on there, but that makes sense. Uh, it's practically the story of the printing press is the story of the Bible. <laughs> so, like, how many versions of that do you have on there? Oh, a ridiculous number of versions of the Bible. So, so. Um, what happened was um, it, it's actually it's very similar to the versions of Shakespeare and for somewhat similar reasons. Uh, they're sort of foundational literary works and also pretty long. So, um, and it turned out uh, uh, Michael Hart worked for uh, something like a decade on Shakespeare. His father was a Shakespeare scholar and they, they did a lot of work on Shakespeare. Um, he also worked for a long time on the Bible and the original way that they were released, published by Project Gutenberg, were a chapter was an ebook, and mostly this was just practical because they're so long that you know people you know you, you couldn't fit enough. Uh, I'm sorry, you couldn't fit a whole Bible on a floppy disk. You know, you need multiple floppy disks, but you can fit a book of a Bible uh, of the Bible on the floppy disk. So he did the uh, King James version of the Bible as individual books per chapter, and then later as uh, I think one book for Old Testament, one book for New Testament, and then finally later we had one one ebook that was just everything all together. Then uh, there's probably about six or eight different major versions of the Bible that are also out there, including some that are not in English. Um, as a, a Latin version of the Bible. So yeah, we have we have quite a few, and uh, these were all produced over the over the years by uh, by different volunteers who came in from different uh, sources. And just like the printed version, they have somewhat different uses. You know, they might be, uh, you know, the uh, uh, more modern translations obviously are a little bit more accessible than uh, the Latin translations. And um, uh, and also there's some some material differences. Some of these different uh, uh, versions actually have slightly different ordering to the books, or even um, some books or some content that's not found in one of the other versions. King James, of course, is the most common one. And we have, uh, we have that in a few different versions as well. Do you guys have uh, relationships with publishers? Um, or are you uh, instinctively, I would think that you'd be at odds with the publishing sector. But um, I'm also kind of a pessimist when it comes to business. <laughs> so 
Um, we don't have formal relationships with almost anybody. We try to avoid that. We have a few partners that uh, mostly were historical over the years that uh, Michael developed when he was trying to uh, evangelize, in particular, he was trying to get Project Gutenberg's working for uh, for other nationalities. So like there's a Project Gutenberg of Australia, for example. But uh, but generally, we, we avoid doing partnerships. Uh, partially, it's just because we're a lightweight organization. It's just a few few people that are that are sort of at the top of the organization like me that are trying to uh uh you know keep keep things going from uh you know from a technical standpoint and we're not too interested in the uh organizational partnerships but i think more importantly uh we strive to be available equally to everybody for all purposes so we don't say gee you know we're only about uh, this type of literature, or only for these types of readers, or only uh, aiming to have authoritative editions and not, uh, you know, uh, fun editions. You know, whatever it is, we're we're, we're trying to trying to be uh, open and say anything that's printed, we're interested in um, in digitizing. So it would be somewhat uh, uncharacteristic for us to have a partnership with particular publishers. But also, I don't know if there's a lot of benefit there. I think the one thing that would be interesting is working on back catalog. So when you have a publisher that's been around for a really long time, they might say, hey, we will help you. We will contribute uh, materials as they enter the public domain and we'll, you know, we'll sort of work to make that available. We haven't been approached by them. I think, you know, fundamentally, if it's in the public domain, they're no longer very well able to make money on that item. Um, but, uh, but, but that's the sort of relationship that I think would be, uh, would be of interest. And and by the way, you know, you go to the bookstore, you know, to the extent that anyone goes to physical bookstores, you can find Pride and Prejudice for sale, right? So so publishers can still publish things and sell things that are in the public domain. And all the content that's in Gutenberg, um, maybe not 100%, but I mean, most of the content in Gutenberg you can get, you know, as, as an ebook from a commercial publisher, uh, not only from Gutenberg. So there's no no inability to do that you know you can still you can still sell the stuff uh, so i think again from that standpoint there's probably not a lot in it for a publisher to uh, formally work with us now that said we do have a couple of um uh not formal but we do have a couple of cooperations with organizations businesses that make stuff available to libraries so um uh for, for example um if you're a library that wants to have Project Gutenberg as part of your online catalog so that people can find an ebook, just like they can find a printed book in your collection, uh, there's some service providers that help you with that. And we're, we're always happy to, to, to coordinate with them so that they can make the best use of our, uh, of our materials in these products and then get them into libraries. Yeah, well, you know, with the publishers, I would think there'd be like a PR rationale. As soon as a book goes in the public domain, let's work with these guys. You know, we'll still sell copies here and there, but just for the sake of, mm -hmm. I don't know, public relations, it makes sense to me. Because um, yeah. even though, like, when I was in my BA, I did a cultural studies uh, BA, and one of the classes I took was called Rise of the Novel. And Everything in that syllabus is available on Project Gutenberg, but I still bought hard copies. Mm -hmm. um, I only used the the ebooks because if if like a text was delayed in the mail or something, uh, mm -hmm. but 
so it's not like people aren't going to buy them. People like me who want to physically annotate pages are going to still buy those books. So it makes sense from a PR standpoint to work with you guys. I think it would make sense. I think mainly, though, publishers do tend to be um, relatively shoestring operations. Like, the, you know, the, the, the whole process is uh, tends not to involve a lot of money, tends to involve as much efficiency as possible. Um, of course, when you have the really big authors, you know, your Stephen Kings and, and Suzanne Collins and stuff like that, then then they they might have a, a higher budget. But, um, but I think just the practicalities of assigning personnel to something that isn't really likely to make them much money is uh, is probably not that much of interest to uh, to the publishers. Also, again, on a, on more of a uh, a negative view on this, I mean, they don't. I don't think publishers want you to know when they're selling you a copy of Pride and Prejudice for twelve ninety nine that uh, that there's none of that money is going to the publisher or their I'm uh, sure to the author or their heirs or anything like that because it's in the public domain. All it's doing is covering the overhead of printing and distribution, and then the rest is uh, is profit, right? None of it's going to the to the author. So I don't think they really want to advertise that fact to uh, uh, you know too much in the uh, in the in the way they do business. Do do you guys get a lot of in, a lot of questions? I mean, I know I'm like coming at you with all these operational questions because I've always been yeah, curious no about your organization. I was wondering if. Uh, other people are interested in what you're doing, like uh, universities and students. Uh, I've been interested mm -hmm. in what you guys are doing since, honestly, since I enrolled in a BBA, oh, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, it's when we, when Project Gutenberg was started, it was the only thing of its kind, right? And, and Michael spent literally a couple of decades and there was not a lot else going on. But by the late 80s, there were actually a number of different uh, public library ebook projects that were going on. Um, uh, and Project Gutenberg has the, is the one that stayed in operation the longest. But there are a lot of other ones that are still out there. There's something called uh, Happy Trust that's, uh, that's active. You have uh, obviously uh, uh, projects like Google Books and, and Internet Archive that uh, you know have sort of a broader mission, but are also still very active in, uh, in electronic books. And um, you know, you mentioned your own experience, you know, with with uh, you know with use of electronic books in uh, in universities. So yeah, there's there's really quite a lot going on, and uh, and it's changed over the years. And Project Gutenberg has been sort of a long time player, and I think we we serve an important role there because we have so firmly on the side of unlimited redistribution. It's like we're not going down the pathway of ebooks born as PDF, for example, right? We're, because you can't easily extract content from a PDF file. So we're making sure we use the open standards, you know, use HTML and plain text and, and that sort of thing. And we have a collection development policy, which is very, very non-restrictive. It basically says that it follows something called the American Library Association's freedom to read principle. And it basically says if it was published by a bona fide publisher and is in the public domain, it's eligible for inclusion. As long as we can do a good job of digitizing it. There's some stuff that's uh, uh, that we had difficulty digitizing, so maybe we have to work on that a little bit more. But you know, very, very open. And so I think we we lead the way in some of that. Uh, you know, open standards, uh, open redistribution, uh, inclusion of volunteers, uh, very permissive collection development. Uh, uh, policy and and so you know that's served us well and I think we've we've um, uh, 
been recognized as sort of uh, an organization that takes that sort of pretty enlightened approach. You know, like we're not trying to make a lot of editorial decisions. We're not trying to to say we're only focused on some particular type of literature, only the highbrow literature or, or stuff like that. But all that said, the world is a big place. We only have 67 or so thousand ebooks. So there's a lot of other books out there and there's a lot of specialties. There's a lot of different languages, a lot of different emphasis areas, uh, things like scholarly literature or um, uh, court records. I mean, you can just sort of come up with all kinds of stuff that Gutenberg doesn't do a whole lot of and would be a, a great uh, area for another organization to, uh, uh, to work in. So I don't know how well that addresses what you're asking, but I mean, I feel like we're, we're in a situation where um, we do what we do. We've, we do what we do. We do it reasonably well. And we've experimented over the years with other stuff. Like we did some movies, we did some scholarly literature, we did some, I don't know, um, uh, uh, different types of formatting and markup. And it turned out we weren't, that we did audiobooks, and it turned out we weren't really all that great at that compared to some other organizations that came later. So we decided to stick with literature and, and that's what we do. That's what we do now. But the world is a big place and there's a lot of other things that uh, other organizations can do and they can do that well. And we're very encouraging. And just to give you one example of a partner organization that we helped foster over the years is uh, LibriVox. Uh, LibriVox.org is audio ebooks that are uh, public domain ebooks. Just about all of them are from Project Gutenberg. And people read them. Uh, you know, it's an audio ebook performance. So people read them and they grant all of that performance to the public domain. So free, unencumbered, un unlimited redistribution, just like Project Gutenberg, but audio books instead of, instead of printed books. And mostly, like I said, audio of Project Gutenberg books. So this is the type of thing that Project Gutenberg tried to do like 15 or 20 years ago. And it turned out we, we just weren't that well suited to it. Uh, there was, uh, there were a variety of things that, that didn't align that well between creating textual books and creating audio books. So LibriVox came along and we encouraged them and fostered them and sent, sent people that are interested in doing that work to LibriVox and they're doing a great job. So, so the ecosystem, you know, we don't feel proprietary about our corner of the ecosystem. Any other organization can do what we do and that's great. Anything that gets literature in people's hands at little or no cost is great. And people that are doing stuff that's not text or uh, otherwise something that we don't do at all. That's also that's also great, very encouraging of all that. And that was that was something I really learned from Michael Hart. He was always always the one that said yes and encouraged and 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 uh, gave permission. And we continue that to the day. I appreciate that. That's it's clear. The mission is at the foremost front of everything, um, which you don't see a lot. Um, I. Uh, I had, I had another question. Um, I know that there's some there's some weird confusion with Peter Pan in mm. that it's it's not allowed. It has to be licensed, I guess, in the United Kingdom, but it doesn't have to be licensed mm -hmm. here. And how do you deal with something like that? Well, the the good news is we we don't need to deal with it because what we say right on the website and at the very top of every book is that if you're not in the United States, check your copyright laws before you do anything with this ebook. And um, so, so the fact that Peter Pan has this sort of special exemption in the UK, sort of a perpetual copyright uh, arrangement there, doesn't impact or limit our ability to redistribute that book 
from our servers because we're based in the US. All the people that run Gutenberg are US people. Our uh, servers are in the US. Our infrastructure is in the US. Our, our policy procedure, IRS charity registration, you know, everything's US based. And we have uh, repeatedly confirmed with lawyers and uh, uh, other experts that what we're doing is correct. So if you're somewhere else, then yeah, our, our Pride and Prejudice or our Peter Pan or our Great Gatsby probably statistically is probably okay where you are too, but you have to check that yourself. We don't make any guarantee or representation. Now, this is, and, and the thing that's obvious is, is this isn't the way most of the commercial worlds work. So if you're using Netflix or Apple movies or, or you know, one of these other platforms, um, Amazon, they know where you are, right? The server knows where you are and will give you the appropriate storefront for that country and will not, hopefully, you know, will, 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 they'll try not to sell you something that they shouldn't be selling in that country, right? Uh, whether, whether it's because of copyright or some other reason. It might just be that the seller won't ship to that country. You know, maybe the seller only ships to the United States, you know, whatever the reason is. So uh, what they call this uh, localization, by the way, in the, in the e-commerce world. So yeah, so but Project Gutenberg doesn't do that. We're entirely based in the U.S. and that's and that's not unusual either, right? If you go, if you have like your, I don't know, you have a um, a school website or a, or a play troupe or a, or a or a local store and they have a website, they don't, they're not reaching out, they're not trying to to deal with uh, with other countries. They're doing what they do locally, and then if someone shows up on the, you know, because it's on the web, you can get to it. If someone shows up on the internet from another country then they sort of have to understand that, uh, you know, that the services, the opportunities for accessing whatever's on that website might be limited or might just be inappropriate for other places. So Gutenberg is of that ilk, right? We're not, we're not Amazon, we're not uh, Apple, we're not Microsoft, right? We're not trying to be an international conglomerate. We're very much based in the US and following the laws of the US. So, so yeah, so Peter Pan is, is uh, one that people know about. Like if, in, if you're in the UK, you probably already know that Peter Pan has limited use. I don't know if that, um, how that translates to, can you, can you download it and read it on your computer legitimately? Or do you have to go to some government authorized website to, to do that? I don't, I don't know uh, what the rules are on that. And that's an example of where even if I knew I wouldn't put it on Project Gutenberg because then all of a sudden I, I'm getting into the business as Project Gutenberg of giving people advice when they're not in the US, right? And that's not that's not safe, right? Because that advice might change uh, or it might be wrong, right? And then all of a sudden I am reaching out to people outside of the US and trying to trying to make statements about copyright and stuff. And that's, uh, the, first of all, we wouldn't be good at that. But second of all, there's that's a very perilous slippery slope because, um, uh, you know, unless you're a big monster conglomerate, uh, that's a tough thing to do. You know, all of that localization is um, uh, labor intensive, changeable, sometimes involves uh, uh, filing legal paperwork, stuff like that. And Project Gutenberg just doesn't do it. We're just uh, U.S. based. That's it. If you're not from the U.S., then read, read, the, read what's in front of you and follow the instructions of your, uh, your own country before you uh, decide whether you're allowed to access. All right. Well. I got th I got through all of my bullet points on this, and I, and uh, is there anything that you were thinking about mentioning uh, before coming on here? Well, uh, thank you for these uh, thoughtful questions. They're 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 good questions, good topics. Um, uh, it's nice uh, to, to be 
appreciated, I think, as, as Project Gutenberg. You know, as I said, there was uh, there were a lot of years when I uh, I wasn't so much a victim, but I was watching Michael Hart get beat up publicly. A lot of it was by librarians and book lovers and, and other folks, more or less saying that ebooks are terrible and we should only have printed books. And uh, that doesn't happen anymore, right? These days, uh, ebooks are are a multi-billion-dollar business. They're how people get literature, and uh, and of course, with computers, that's how books are born in the first place, right? People are typing books on computers and, and so forth. So, in a sense, you know, Michael was right. Uh, he won, right? He won that that uh, battle of uh, decades, and um, and the uh, uh, the ebook is is here to stay. So, I think that's. Uh, that's a, an enduring legacy, and Project Gutenberg is uh, continuing that legacy by creating ebooks from printed books and also putting a, a, a very firm stake in the sand and saying that these are for unlimited free redistribution, right? Without, without really any limit other than uh, what we talked about before some international copyright or some other, uh, uh, some usage restrictions, including the trademark. But the book itself, do with as you will. Uh, enlighten yourself, enjoy, entertain, uh, use it as reference, uh, print it and use it as uh, as uh, 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 bedding for your gerbils, right? Whatever you want. Uh, it's all, all, all good. It's all okay. And, uh, and what we hope, of course, is that um, this access to literature, to free literature, will um, encourage literacy, that literacy will encourage education, that education is a pathway to opportunity. So there is a bigger picture here of, of what motivates us. It's, uh, it's the digitization, the redistribution, but it's also the opportunity for enlightenment, opportunity, uh, opportunity to, uh, to enjoy, opportunity to learn that we see as being so important. So I wanted to finish just with sort of that high, high ground um, summary of what motivates us and if uh, any of your listeners are motivated by any of what I've talked about, then the easiest thing to do is visit distributed proofreaders at pgdp.net, Project Gutenberg distributed proofreaders.net, and uh, help out with creating some of these new ebooks that, uh, that are not yet available for free redistribution. You can help make that happen. I'll put links into the description to make sure that people can easily navigate there. Um, and I appreciate the high note. That's that's sort of how I was always looking at uh, ending this podcast. So you did it for me perfectly. Um, and on on one other note, though, when you mentioned the librarians being against this, I uh, I think that's funny because I you know I found out about this through librarians, and now I hear librarians referring people to Project Gutenberg all the time. Oh yeah, <laughs> things have changed, and and there's a whole you, you didn't uh, ask a question about the. Um, the the commercial I've, I've talked to people in libraries a lot. I mean, I, I, my PhD is from Syracuse University School of Information uh, Studies, and um, that's where they train librarians, right? That's where I met my, my wife is a librarian. So so you know, libraries are part of my part of my background. But um, the uh, the fact is that publishers are raping libraries for the cost of eBooks. Like it's terrible, really terrible. The uh, the cost of an ebook is higher than it should be. So if you go and buy the latest bestseller, you're probably paying about what you would pay if you got it in print, you know, on the order of twelve ninety-nine or seventeen ninety-nine or nine ninety-nine, right? These types of costs for 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 the books, depending on a variety of factors. Um, 
a library that wants to have a, a printed copy of that book is probably going to pay somewhat more, um, not much more, uh, to get the printed copy and be able to loan that out. If they want an ebook to loan out, they're often paying 10 times that cost, more than five, five to 10 times that cost. And the reason is basically because they can because the publishers can, can gouge the libraries at these extremely inflated prices and then have uh, really strict limitations on the technology involved in getting access. So a lot of libraries are using Dropbox. Uh, there's some other, other technologies that are out there for licensing. Um, what that amounts to is, if you think about it just at a high level, exactly the opposite of Project Gutenberg. It, it is limited, unfree, this uh, inability to distribute, right? In other words, you get a book from the library that's, you know, via publisher and you can't do any of the stuff that we talked about. You can't print it. You can't uh, save another copy. You can't forward it to your friend. You can't make an extract. You can't take a, take a quote, you know, just like copy and paste a quote very easily. You can't extract just the images and print one and put it on your wall. Like all these things that you might want to do with a book you are uh, usually, not 100% always, but you know, usually you are completely prevented by the technology base from doing this. And then do you own it? No, you didn't own that book. Even if you buy it on, forget about the libraries, even if you go and buy a book from, uh, from a reseller, um, an ebook, often you don't own that book any more than you own an Apple movie that you paid you know, $19.99 for, right? You have a limited license to use that movie for whatever purposes the, the you know, uh, distributor chooses. And if that distributor goes away, you know, we're not too worried about Apple going away these days, but there's a lot of uh, situations where you get some technology and then it goes away, right? The company uh, goes away, they sell their technology and don't keep the, the thing updated. I'm wrestling with my printer right now because the printer is five years old and it looks like it doesn't work anymore with my my operating system, right? So, so same thing with eBooks, right? You you buy an eBook, and that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to read that eBook for all time. It means that you can read it as long as you can read it, you know, as long as the publisher chooses to make it available. So the the cost to libraries is incredibly high, and the ability to do with as you would a printed book is also very limited, um, especially for libraries, but but uh, even more so for uh, or, or equally so for individuals. Uh, as readers, so yeah, that's um, it's a sad thing, but but it makes sense that uh, you know even with so that's further inspiration. But even without that inspiration, it does make sense that libraries librarians would say, hey, you're interested in some content? Here's some free content. You know, they can link to the website. As I mentioned before, they could incorporate the uh, catalog, the, the you know the machine readable catalog of Gutenberg, into their website, so it's easy to find, or just link to you know Gutenberg.org. And in either case. If someone shows up and they want to get, you know, they want to read a classic, they saw the Pride and Prejudice movie or they saw the Great Gatsby movie and they want to, you know, read the book behind that movie. Um, uh, of course, the library might have a copy to loan, right? But why not also say, here's where you can get your own copy to do with as you will. Yeah. And I mean, the whole library thing is another conversation that I'm trying to figure out how to have because I've had. Amazon best-selling authors on here who can't get their books into a library because the library has some weird contract with publishers. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's very, very confusing. Uh, and, uh, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, essentially the, the transition, which is not 
it didn't happen first with ebooks. It happened really with software. But it's a transition from having a uh, having ownership of something to having a license to use something, right? And so and so with software, if you look back at the history of shrink wrap software, you know where you're getting software for your PC. Um, uh, the idea was that you don't own the software. You have a limited license to utilize the software for, you know, like I said, whatever purposes are uh, uh, dictated by by the company. And um, ebooks uh, are following after music and then movies, the same exact pathway, right? It's like you 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 think you bought music, but you didn't buy music from that streaming service. You bought a limited term, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, ability to to enjoy the music on you know within some limitations which might be particular devices you know that are licensed and so forth and um, uh, you know uh, uh, Apple Music is a great example you know they 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 do let you make an MP3 and with the MP3 you can do kind of with you will you know it's just a file um, but if you just, if you leave it within the Apple ecosystem I, I had this experience. Um, uh, going internationally, suddenly you're in a different country and none of what you thought you owned is available to you because you're in a different country. And if you want to get it, you have to buy it again, right? That's the solution. And, uh, you know, so that's a, uh, unfortunate pathway. Like I said, software, music, movies, and now ebooks are all following that license-based approach as opposed to an ownership well that's yeah i mean with music and movies i'm still a believer in the optical disc and uh buying it so that i can include it what i do is i buy the mp3s from amazon put them on the ipod and then shut off the uh the connection so that they don't know where Mm -hmm. i am when i'm listening and and it's all very designed for that reason is i don't want them shutting me off so yeah yeah, and you can, and you know, the different different sources are more and less enlightened about your ability to get it to a more persistent format. Because you know, once you have it as MP3, no one can shut that off. Really, you know, they can shut down your your iPod maybe, but uh, you know, with a software fix. But at least your MP3 is kind of portable, and you can back it up and, and so forth. And the thing that's interesting is that was uh, that thing that I just mentioned backing up. That was settled law decades ago. Again, in the software context, it's like. When, when people were doing copy protection on floppy disks and CDs, the uh, settled law is that you need to have the ability as a consumer to make a backup of that because you know things happen and you might need, might need to go to that backup copy. Um, but the, uh, the whole cloud storage, I think, has, has changed that uh, quite a bit, you know, the streaming, streaming and cloud approach because you don't, you're, you're, you're your backup is what you're listening to in a sense, right? The, the authoritative copy is off on the, on the cloud somewhere in the, you know, Apple cloud or Microsoft cloud or whatever it is. So it's a, it's a pretty different uh, model of redistribution, but fundamentally the ability of you to make a, say an MP3 copy for safekeeping, that's, that's uh, a matter of settled, settled law. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the company has to make it easy for you, right? They might, uh, they might make it hard for you to, uh, to do that. Yeah. They're going to do what they're going to do. Uh, thanks. Well, thanks for reaching out, Eric. I enjoyed yeah, our discussion yeah. and I good luck with well. the uh, podcast in the future. Yeah. All right. Bye.
Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.